Hello, and welcome to the Indexical Podcast. In this episode, Andrew Smith talks with David Kant of the Happy Valley Band and John Leidecker, a.k.a. Wobbly. They discuss Wobbly's use of networked mobile devices for making live electronic music and how surveillance and labor is implicated in the use of these devices. They also talk about the Happy Valley Band, how it has influenced David's understanding of machine hearing, and what it's like to perform the arbitrarily complex music. Throughout the podcast, we will play several pieces by Wobbly and the Happy Valley Band. Thanks for listening. so much stuff yeah i've been living so in this apartment for a while you must have like yeah. you, people who live in san francisco get trapped and i mean i've i've outgrown this apartment a long time ago but the the rent control just means oh, you like you yeah. can't leave unless you leave like 40 yeah, miles good. yeah 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 but, yeah everything in here is pretty like been vetted like five vetted and not purged 10 times over to make sure that like it, it's like you know of daily importance yeah <laughs> you know the cds are not decorative they they get used and you do a lot of research and you um mm-hmm. you're always using the liner notes for those things so mm-hmm. yep that they are like a library you know that's like one of the i think things we we're worried about when we we're you know streaming services all the all the extra info you lose it or it's not so accessible. Yeah, yeah the, the, the PDF comes with the, your LP. Like, yeah. all of your liner notes are, you know, they're, they're there, but that doesn't mean everybody reads them. Yeah, and that doesn't even mean that you can... There's no convenient way of filing the PDF either. No, right? no, no. You drag the folder over. I mean, you know, if you drag it over into iTunes, it copies everything but the PDF. Yeah, exactly. You know, data loss with liner notes, even if you go to the extent to provide it, like, you know, they go missing. Right. So you're just, you know, you do your best to post it online and maybe 5% of the music listening public was even interested in liner notes to begin with. So those 5%, they are getting adept at Google and they look and, you know, they educate yeah. themselves. In some ways, it's easier for that 5% to find the liner notes that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. But, you know, then there was maybe 10% of the music listening audience that wouldn't have cared about these things, but by osmosis saw the line notes because there was a physical object and those people are now not getting exposed to that information. So like concept heavy projects that sort of blossomed when you knew how they were made Mm -hmm. are becoming just sound. And it's, it's, it's a shame. It's something to look out for. So uh, can you talk some about the um, mobile listening devices project? Well, the, the, the yes, yes, movies. very, um, I think uh, a lot of the solo work as Wobbly for a long time was simply collage music and uh, playback music and kind of the idea that um, um, there's no such thing as a real frozen recording, like a recording is always live music every single time you play it. So when you go into a concert situation and you... Uh, even if you're just playing back one stereo file, it's still live music technically, especially if it's clear to the audience that the person playing the file has no idea when he's going to stop or start <laughs> playing that file. Um, 
So that was sort of the idea for about 10 to 15 years. Um, it was collage music. Sometimes it would sort of border on, um, there was always a, a line between pure appropriation where all of the sounds were stolen or appropriated and like some things that had been crafted enough to the point where they sort of felt like me. But um, in many ways, it was all largely recordings. Um but it's really hard to carry around a CD player, uh, CD players with you everywhere. I never got into um, laptops because laptops made it not only made it too easy, but they um, there was always going to be something inherently alienating about a laptop in a live performance mm -hmm. situation. The audience can't see your fingers. They have no idea what your gestures are. And um, the cultural associations of the laptop are often one of... Um, the day job, labor. So those are, is he, the the jokes about, is that guy just checking email? We're never <laughs> going to go away and still won't. Um, but for whatever, so I never really used a laptop live, but for whatever reason, when those iPads showed up, um, instantly the game was changed. Multi-touch, um, there were just, it was clearly, uh, um, it wasn't just labor saving. It wasn't just that they were less heavy than CD players. It was that the, the gestures were more expressive and interesting than they are on a mouse trackpad. Um, and the software was increasingly more different. There are all these apps that basically try to look like the surface of a DX7 mm -hmm. or an old Oberheim SEM, but um, you play them differently. Uh, and then there were all these new interesting apps that really took advantage of multi-touch. So like, even if the underlying algorithms and code for the soft synth were, you know, 10 to 30 years old, you would play them differently. Um, and then in a very real way, I got into electronic music because it was clearly the most contemporary form of expression. Like, you know, I, I didn't have any interest in flute playing or ukulele playing, but you know, every single time I was outdoors or at a picnic or like, you know, underneath the tree in the South of France and watching someone just sort of casually play guitar as a storm front moved in, I would totally envy. <laughs> um, it was hard not to envy acoustic music players yeah. who didn't have to sit there waiting 60 seconds for their instrument to boot. Um, and so, yeah, these, these things are just omnipresent. And then slowly over from 2011 to 2013, more and more of the most amazing apps started showing up on your phone, which are literally with you at all times and have a built-in speaker. So these things totally ingratiated myself uh, in themselves into my life. Um, and very slowly over the course of two years, stopped being an auxiliary in my live setup and started being everything in the live set mm -hmm. like everything my live set was basically two ipads two iphones and then three ipads three iphones <laughs> and uh so at that point you definitely and I, I i was confused it was more than just the convenience there was something intrinsic in the format so the piece sort yeah. of started becoming about what mobiles mean and what mobiles are and how they're screwing with all of us in our lives. Um, and uh, then the other more interesting thing about them is that one of the the prime motors in the live set, you know, in order to play six devices and have them all sounding at once, those pitch trackers just went to the center of, of the work. And that's um, a very familiar thing for you guys. Like uh, the, the, uh, the listening devices that basically are 
um, listening and guessing what the notes are and often getting it spectacularly wrong um, became a core part of the the real-time sound. And the thing that I liked about that is that as as amazing as an emotional and as intimate a process it's become, like these iPads are now my expressive musical instruments. Like <laughs> yeah. these iPhones are with me all the time. I no longer check Facebook in line at a store as often. Like I, I pull out a synthesizer, I pull out TC11 and start playing. Uh, but these things are also tracking devices and everything is like, no matter how hard you try to turn off things to the cloud, yeah. they are you are always finding new ways under the hood that these things are uploading all of your data and like giving the game away and turning themselves into tracking devices. Mm. So this personalized musical instrument that's like at the core of your creative expression is also totally betraying, like it's giving, <laughs> it's expressing too much. It's expressing more than you even know about yourself. Uh, so the idea of getting these pitch trackers into the instrument to like take advantage of the, um, um, the fact that these things all have built-in microphones that apps don't even tell you when they're accessing mm -hmm. seemed like another thing to explore. Hmm. So that was uh, that was how I found myself making iOS pieces and trying um, um, trying to be somewhat sensitive to what these things actually are. Like what is what is specific, uh, intrinsic about electronic music and modern expressive expressive music making with these things? Yeah, I I I think that the the distinction you made at the very beginning of the laptop being about labor was yeah. really interesting because when we walked in here, we saw you on Pro Tools, like kind of you know composing this live set, right? Yeah, reconstructing some live set, and there seems to be a real dichotomy between coming in working on some working on something that will produce a product like like working on something for a recording and then uh you know ipads and iphones it seems like it's all about the process of kind of exploring and linking these things together and and, and it's a live performance even when you're standing in line right yeah you're yeah. not necessarily sitting there you know sequencing things that you're gonna then craft into a full record yeah yeah when i sit down at this this pro tools workstation with the glass desk and the faders and everything i'm usually working it's mm -hmm. not it's you got to steal yourself for it and you got to turn everything on and it takes like you know two to four minutes to boot everything and you just mm -hmm. enter into a, a very concentrated engineering like uh uh work mode work mode and uh in the meantime like these iphones are constantly they're just they're play you make sounds with them instantly. I could totally see why people feel safe letting two to four-year-olds play with mobiles in a way that they would have never, even the most like socially conscious, parent, conscious parents would be nervous about TV or nervous about a laptop. But they're like, oh, sure, yeah, here, take this, you know, play with, play with this Moog mo Model 15 for like, you know, go ahead, knock yourself out, my yeah. two-year-old kid. This this clearly... <laughs> like create i'm i'm clearly doing the right thing by letting you play with tc11 <laughs> so yeah. yeah yeah what was um what was the interest in the in the using the pitch trackers and the listening stuff were you saying that was a way to get the devices to interact with each other or was it yes like it's a good it's a way to get them all listening to each other and it's also it results in i love the errors i love sure. um um, it is like 
these things are con- they, it's a way of showing the audience that these things really are always listening and right. then it's a way of showing you just how low resolution their understanding of us is <laughs> and how um, how they yeah. don't quite really see us all of that um, uh, accurately yet. <laughs> and it's beautiful. Like, you know, the ideas that they come up with when they're trying to guess what melodies we're playing are uh, fascinating. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the first things I thought of when I saw your uh, when I saw your program notes for this concert is that these are clearly both like devices that listen, and that's pretty clear from your uh, discussion about surveillance and all that. But they're also they're also the predominant way that we listen to music now. Yeah, is like walking around with these things or just. N- n- not even with earbuds half the time just people i know people you know, love the speakers table. yeah it's a yeah. big deal it's yeah. a big deal how i mean like on the one hand it's a total degradation in quality on the other hand it's unbelievable how good that speaker is for for what it is <laughs> like so you use it you use it it's great yeah and it's interesting how how it changes how it changes mixing but also how there's like it's geared toward a certain type of clarity that like mm-hmm. we were talking about like experimental electronic music on vinyl how that's like the opposite edge of clarity and it's like these speakers are really geared toward kind of you know a certain type of speech clarity oh, yeah. right yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that maybe lends itself well to certain types of music and that colors all the music that comes out of it right so, right well you know and and it's depersonalizing too like like we were talking about like like you like you don't have liner notes but also if you're on Spotify or Pandora, if you're using one of, one of the playlists, you half the time might not even know anything about the artist. Right. Like you might right. know the name if you take your phone out and you look at it. <laughs> but if you just have Pandora on in like your, you know, Sono system or whatever sitting there, then you don't even know the name. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an advantage to have this much shuffling and this much streaming and this much exposure to many, many things. But um, it is very easy to lose touch with the social context and meanings of the music you're getting exposed to. Like, And the assumption is that if you really care about something, you'll do the digging and you'll find out what that context is. But, you know, that's not, you know, it's certainly not being done for you in the way that liner notes or album packaging or, uh, you know, any kind of tangible context that normally would accompany music. It's, it's not being done for you in the way it used to be 10, 50, 100 years ago when most music even then was uh, made by the people who played it. Minasan Minasan Minasan.
platform is like what are the sound sources is it becoming less sort of like sample and collage based or using synthesizers how does that relate to kind of coming from all that collage work well i'm getting back into the collage work slowly for a while um i was getting out of it there was a long uh, hiatus where i was getting into um out of appropriative collage and into feedback uh, and the history of feedback in electronic music as like the primary generative principle. Like it just, it, uh, it was still recycling. uh, But um, that actually happened around the time I joined negative land. Like it was a real shock to finally be in that group. And the reaction was, uh, I think the way we all dealt with it was to not sample anything at all. <laughs> uh, and they had been doing this thing. Like, um, actually, like around the mid-2000s, they started occasionally doing these live performances that were the Booper symphonies. And the Boopers mm-hmm. are these feedback instruments that David Wills, the weatherman, invented in 1974 that are very David Tudory. Like they're basically radio amplifiers with an extra three feedback loops of gain staging and you just twist the knobs. And when they're all at null, you can tell it's a radio amplifier, but the second you flip any of them, they just wildly self-oscillate. And um, uh, so the way uh, uh, we dealt with me joining Negative Land, at first for a while it was called Negative Wobbly Land just to make sure that nobody (laughs) would even want to come to those shows. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then we made sure that no one would want to by, instead of playing even any old negative land material, we would do 40 minute noise, David Tudor-y like improv concerts. Um, but, um, the principle basically was feedback and gain staging is like the core one thing about electronic music that didn't exist before electronic music. And it goes straight to David Tudor and the Barons and, um, all like Louis and baby Baron, like, Ground Zero electronic music. Let's get back to that. Uh, and then, to a degree, what what the the exploration with the iPads was, especially once I started using the pitch trackers, was just rooting all of the outputs of the iPads to each other. 
and then <laughs> using the pitch tracking as an extension of feedback. Like yeah. I would drive a synthesizer and then have four other synthesizers on the other ones that would be activated by those iPads guessing what the first iPad was playing. And then you just turn them on and off and like, you know, just do auxiliary routing from iPad to iPad so that the first iP the second iPad would be guessing what the first one was playing and the third one would be guessing what the second one was playing. And then you just hear them all at once and it would be this mad cacophony. Um, but also still one that, you know, plays. So I'm playing the first iPad and if I stop playing the first iPad, the other two iPads shut up. Um, <laughs> my friend... I think it was Tim Perkers who said this eventually, like live electronic music is disorienting for a lot of uh, people in the audience because so much of it is automated. And Tim Perkers said, yeah, if the person who's ostensibly playing the concert falls over and dies, the music should stop within 10 seconds or else it's not really live electronic music. And that was appealing. Like, you know, if yeah. I stop playing the first iPad, the music stops usually within five to 10 seconds. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know how to tie all this together. Thank you for helping me work all this out. Like, it carried over. The initial iPad concerts were kind of an extension of the feedback idea. Cool. But it was yeah. live synthesis. Uh, live, all of, um, some of them are sampling the other iPads as another form of feedback. But, um, you know, just the old Norbert Wiener and concepts of uh, cybernetic feedback and control and letting these things set up systems that could yeah. uh, respond and listen to show how the machines are interacting and listening with us. Anything that would illustrate that principle seemed like fair game. Mm -hmm. were, with the when you started doing that with negative land or, or negative wobbly land, were you uh, what is, were you rebuilding circuitry? Were you using mixers or other? Um, we'd use Mackie mixers, but, uh, I don't know if we can't show the audience these. This is, oh, this is the original booper. Oh. Ah. 1974 built for, uh, the weatherman's, uh, senior thesis at Diablo Valley College. Um, and it's a radio amplifier with, you know, these are the, the knobs that you turn that control the level of rooting back into mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. um, and it uh, it plays rhythms and melodies um, that are very untraditional, just, you know, series of, of uh, sine and square waves. You know, yeah. it's it's self-oscillating. It's a self I mean, any, any person who's been even remotely following the process of noise music um, from 1980 on forward, basically, like the threads that were sort of started by David Tudor in the 60s and like picked up in the form of folk and noise music from there. It's it's very similar. But this these boxes were built in uh, the 1970s, and then David began designing more, and uh, we have a friend named Adam Shaw who had David's original schematics, and like a lot of those basically oh, are... Cool. They're just, and uh, they also take control voltage inputs, which, or audio inputs. And so they, uh, they can be patched in with each other mm -hmm. and uh, become a real symphony of interactive, interactive devices. Yeah. This, the, um, the idea of kind of, or the concept of cybernetics is super fascinating. I think that pretty much every conversation I have <laughs> lately, it, you know, that, that word comes up, yeah. which is just so interesting to me because I feel like that wasn't necessarily the case 
even a few a few years ago. It came back. It yeah. kind of comes in thirty year cycles. Yeah, like exactly. you know, it was big in the nineteen. It was the future in the 19, late forties. Macy conferences were um, a really big deal in terms of uh, thinking about it. And I, you know, we we keep talking about. Um, um, Oh man, what is the exact term? Um, universal basic income. Sure. Uh, that Norbert Wiener, like the first chapter of cybernetics, like you know, it's it's it. He he thought it was imminent in the late forties that there was no way capitalism could continue. Um, Gregory Bateson started talking about it again briefly in the early seventies in the context of the environmental mo- movement, and now it's it's you know the mid twenty tens, and yeah. um, suddenly it's like back again, and it'll probably go away for another thirty years. And, <laughs> uh, but you're right; we're right in the thick of those original that original crop of ideas, like suddenly being totally relevant, and all a bunch of people wondering why the hell it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, like the cyber. I mean, but you know, when when it's not in favor, everybody's like, "Oh no, 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 no." Norbert Wiener. We thought he was the future, but it was actually Claude Shannon. Information theory is clearly that that he was much closer to the mark in terms of uh, you know how things turned out. And then we have a moment, and um, uh, lots of people are out there on the streets burning things down, and all of a sudden, it seems like Norbert again. <laughs> yeah, I was just flipping through it because there's a, a friend was. Look, looking for a reference for a friend it's like it's just page after i mean there's like integral signs you know it's just like it's just page after page of equations yeah um but it was like a best-selling book <laughs> human use of human beings is uh the wiener book that was written for a mass audience that's the place right, okay. to start and god, god and golem incorporated is also that's his take on the shifting meaning of spirituality and religious thinking in the machine age that that's mm-hmm. also but that one has those are those are the two to go to first. The human use of human beings is a terrifying title for a book. Yeah, it really is. But uh, <clears throat> tell us that's not happening. And like you know, if you're if you're not scared enough to read a book with that title at this point, then you're not paying <laughs> attention to begin with. So. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, these things come back, and yeah, it's it's amazing to see um, Marshall McLuhan also like getting referenced again. <laughs> like when when these people fall out of favor, people like really just call it dead and wonder why the yeah. hell they made a big deal to begin with. But you know, then the ideas return.
to like access the information that your mobile devices do push to the to the cloud for like creative use or for live performance or anything you no no i haven't gone under the hood that much besides the uh pages that are buried about three or four levels deep in settings Mm -hmm. that show what they default to when you Mm -hmm. install them um but the information itself apple really oh man they obscure it they really, they really don't make it easy for you to even know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all for creative convenience and streamlining, but um, they are they're getting worse. They're getting worse at helpfully presenting the information that's going on under the hood. Sure, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I, I, um, I wish, I wish I knew more. They keep saying that uh, Androids are getting better at the latency problem. Um, Androids, I don't, the deal is, and certainly my reaction whenever I use apps that are both on iOS and Android 
is that uh, iOS has the latency down to within 5 to 15 milliseconds. And so you can really just mm-hmm. barely play um, passable electronic music on them in real time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the Androids, like you can just tell, like you cannot tap out a drum. You know, even the things that are making drones seem a little bit sluggish. I keep hearing they're getting better, but I haven't seen it yet. Uh, but I sure would prefer to be using Android because you'd be able to have much more control over your your platform. It's just, it seems like it wasn't designed with music yeah. performance in mind yeah, from the outset. That, I, that's, that got me thinking. It's like, I wonder who and for <laughs> for what purpose a lot of like the apps that, that you use um, were designed if you're anywhere close to sort of the what people had in mind. <laughs> I, uh... You know, GarageBand on the iPhone, there's a track on the new Kendrick Lamar record that was produced uh-huh. entirely on an iPhone with an iRig. And um, um, it's totally, it sounds great. That track <laughs> sounds great. You can make really normal, you know, there is there is less and less reason not to um, make normal yeah. music on an iPhone. Sure. Uh, and certainly most of the stuff that gets uploaded to uh, the Audiobus forum uh, and like the various blogs covering iOS music are um, people just trying to sound as close to possible as the mm-hmm. the current standard. So you wouldn't necessarily I I don't know if the stuff that I'm doing is closer. I I'm probably totally deluding myself or flattering myself that the stuff that I'm doing with it is the intrinsic voice of these things. Like my tastes are pretty messed up. Um, Most people are never going to enjoy David Tudor, uh, you know, tapes from 1972, but man, I, I do. So, you know, maybe the subset of people who respond to that, not just David Tudor. Like my, the, the fantasy for negative wobbly land was that like David Tudor and cluster had met in, in forest in the forest in 1973 and jammed for a couple of days. And we were just basically channeling that, that, that fantasy football. Um, um, Sounds like something that could have happened in Santa Cruz. Should have happened in Santa Cruz. A lot of stuff didn't, you know, there, there was a lot of music that kind of hinted at that. So like, you know, um, it can be less pushing the envelope and more just sort of reclaiming some of the alternate threads that started happening uh, 40 years ago that didn't quite then, but maybe are ready to now. But do you ever um, do you ever come up against or like find yourself kind of dealing with some of the, the limits on the devices? I mean, I imagine that since they're meant for music making in such a you know limited platform or maybe maybe it's not a limited platform maybe that what this is what all this is pointing to um but that there might be you know you only there's only so much you can do um well uh i'm just following those limitations for now like right now all the limitations are definitely advantages the things (laughs) that i'm kept from doing um don't seem to be the core of what the music is. Um, eventually, and as I get more back into traditional sample collage, uh, probably those limitations will come more to the, the fore. But right now, just like trying to like get the machines listening to each other and making crazy noises, I'm just like trying to listen to what those crazy noises are <laughs> and see what kind of networks are just sort of naturally there. But yeah, it's pretty dissonant and weird sounding. Like those things are definitely... You know, they sound like 
they're not errors. They're not errors, but it's certainly not the way that humans play. <laughs> yeah, sure. I had that. Yeah. <laughs> Same experience trying to get humans to play. <laughs> yeah. 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 What, yeah. yeah, yeah. What, what comes out? But the weird thing, a happy Valley band, it's clearly made by humans. Like, you know, you guys are pretty locked in. Like there is this level of machine interference. And um, I mean, do you guys listen to the residents? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like that typical, wonderful, like, you know, they couldn't quite, they started off not exactly knowing how to play their instruments. And instead of closing the gap, they accepted the half-step errors. Like, in <laughs> fact, they started writing like that. They'd write a melody and, uh, like, you know, knock half of the most critical notes up or down a half-step. And then, like, that tune would be far more amazing, you know. Uh, and then they'd learn how to play those tunes yeah. wrong and they'd repeat it. Like they actually could, there was intentionality there, but like, you know, um, you, you guys are, I, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys play live to see just how, how, how close, uh, <laughs> how close you can nail those parts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <clears throat> You're going to be in the back with a score book and a red Yeah, yeah. So, give me, I'll, I'll, I'll have the scores that come in the liner notes and I'll yeah. be sitting there with the scores out going, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> Those ones we don't even get close on. Those are all the crazy ones. <laughs> I think it just depends on how much we play the the tunes. Like the, like the ones that we've been doing since 2011 are just like right on. Just mm -hmm. every, I mean, we would do Some are pretty a couple takes. In, yeah. And, yeah. But the new, I mean, David doesn't let us like learn the music though. So, right, right, right. <laughs> I think we had Born to Run like an hour before the session or something. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, you, know, you don't want it to become too stiff. You got to yeah. keep it fresh yeah. for some of them. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. It's definitely some tunes that helps and some tunes that hurts. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, those Charles Ives scores are designed to be unplayable so that you uh, you can't even cope like there it's about they're about the things that happen when you're presented with something unplayable so yeah you know it's once again it's forcing f forcing you out of the traditional classical mindset where you are totally cloning what's on the page and uh making you like listen to the things that actually happen when you just play yeah and i think for us part of the part of the chat like the <laughs> the the better that we do or the better that we do, the more you know discordant and disjointed out of time it will mm -hmm. be because that's sort of when the parts are written and generated. There's no sense of there being a collective pulse or collective time or anything to synchronize to. Um, but when you play, I mean, at least my experience of when I play, it's really hard to like turn that off. Um, mm -hmm. No matter how hard I I try, I try to just kind of focus on the voice and sync to the voice, and but can't <laughs> not hear the the drums and everything else. Yeah, I think the computer. I get the sense looking at the notation that, that the computer is trying to get everything as precise as possible um, and has really no, um, not necessarily any like clear regard for kind of, you know, a melodic line or anything like that, mm -hmm. of course. And, but, but as, as performers, I think we try to get we at least I try to stick as as close to possible to the 
melodic lines and like all the notes and all that kind of stuff um, when it's like feasible and like physically playable. Um, and then allow things to become a little bit fuzzy with the rhythms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a little bit of, you know, ahead of and behind the beat thing. How, how you just judge yeah. and just ballpark it. Well, I mean, there's must be a layer of adaptation with the software choosing the note values. Like I, some of the rhythmic notations are pretty crazy. Like when something is slightly off in the original score, do you like throw people a 128th note or do you like streamline <laughs> that? It's all over the place. Yeah. Like sometimes they're grace notes. Mm-hmm. You mean um, rather than like quantize it to a. Yeah. Like how much quantize I, I, I didn't totally look over the scores, but like, you know, keeping things in a certain key and keeping things rhythmically like at least sort of quantized is uh that's the key to playability and like mm-hmm. how many of those steps do you feel yourself yeah i i so one of the that's one of the things that's sort of like flexible or, or variable um in the the composition process or the process of rendering the notation as there's sort of like a knob on the on the rhythmic um complexity and uh i usually try to keep it as complex as it's still legible in a way Mm -hmm. like you know if it's if it's all 128th notes and 17 tuplets um then it's just I don't think much of the music would come through. So it's sort of like a balance of like, oh, okay, too much information, um, but not trying to throw out all the rhythmic artifacts. But for the most part, I kind of, you know, turn the tuplets up to like 13. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, yeah. And, and let them, let them, <laughs> let them go. I actually, the way it works is there's like a system of basically like a, a weight system on the different uh, tuplets from like least complex to most complex. Um, so, uh, and then I sort of like spit out the music and look at it and say, oh, okay, well, this could use some more 13 tuplets to like weight the complexities a little more and have it render more to it. Okay. And at a certain point, it just becomes spatial notation. I mean, I, I mean, 13 tuplets, no one is playing that. <laughs> no. Uh, no, um, no, that's that's already pretty impressive. <laughs> it's... But But the funny thing, I think, is the alternations between like straight eighth notes and quintuplets or something right. like that. Right, right. Because, because that just, because that's something that m- most performers can pretty much just nail with, mm-hmm. you know, pretty mm-hmm. solid accuracy. Yeah, they can sight read that. Yeah. And, um, and, 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 that, and that's what's really disconcerting to hear in performance is like hear kind of these like kind of, you know, straight eighth notes to the beat, basically, like we're listening to the performer and then just like throw in like a quintuplet, just like try and make that as exact as possible. Cause it's like, what is, it's like from another world. Cause no one plays quintuplets, you, you know, versus some of the times it's just like a swung, just, just ballpark it. And it's yeah swung a little bit, but the, the playable beat divisions that are still <laughs> complex or I think there's this weird like yeah, in between that... zone where it just sets you're not clear what we're playing. I forget exactly which Charles Ives piece it is, but there's one part. It's one of the symphonies, I think, where it's a very playable section and all of a sudden it comes to a solid block 
of 128th notes. <laughs> and right above it is the instruction, play as many of these as you can. <laughs> and that's, that's, it's clearly not physically possible to play it, but the result is an orchestra like picking their own. It's, you know, yeah. and by the time you guys get to 10 players, you're, yeah, you, yeah. those, those, uh, quintuplets are probably just like a nice little stochastic block. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Pick, yeah. Pick what you, pick what you want. <clears throat> Yeah. yeah, so that's something that really changes kind of from tune to tune because depending on the complexity of the notation, some of them are just kind of the same every time. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the same-ish. <laughs> uh, and then others are just like a total a total mess, like Born to Run. Um, and a lot of that has to do even uh, in a weird way with sort of the, the original tune, like the original recordings mm -hmm. um, and the kind of like production techniques that are used in the original recordings because that has a big impact on how clean the separations are and then like what kinds of artifacts are yep. are in the are in the way which is actually kind of where the the project really started for me i was i mean the question was just all right given a stereo like given a recording you know if i want to sample this stuff like how how far can you go like how much stuff can you pull out what can you separate like how how much discrete uh, music can you get out of mm -hmm. a sampled sampled recording and then there's you can't leave these a lot of the arrangement choices to the algorithm um like the arrangements are definitely interfering with the uh pitch detection but then you've got to like you know you have to choose yourself what instruments people are picking up or like you know the, <laughs> the sounds themselves so yep can't yeah. off can't offshore all the work just yet well you could you can't throw at the entire general MIDI library yet, or you could. I mean, you I don't see throw any reason not to do that. Hold <laughs> on. It's something for the second record. Right, right. Or the, yeah, um, we'd need an orchestra of the general MIDI. The uh, Vienna Symphonic Library. <laughs> <I know. laughs> as, as the sample training pack. Yeah. And then not as the performance. It still has to be human performance. But... Um, I, I mean, one of the things that David did for some of the tracks for the classifiers and samples was was just use MIDI drums. Sure. Um, it works shockingly well. It's actually sort of terrifying. The uh, training on general, you know, whatever sample, general MIDI, Apple sample bank mm -hmm. um, is fine. So <laughs> it's enough. There are intermediary, like all machine versions of your scores that you would use to train and listen to uh, in performance. Like, you know, your actual group of people would like train by listening. Mm -hmm. uh, they would, uh, you know, I mean, a recording basically ends the secret to 20th century composition is that things that used to be physically unperformable can be realized in the studio and yeah. people listen to them mm -hmm. until they're actually capable of playing them. Right. Mm -hmm. Like things that otherwise would be totally unintuitive as sheet music. Like, you know, you can't reverse engineer how in the world to turn this into an actual musical phrase. But if you hear it, then suddenly, yeah. yes, you can. Like people could not physically perform drum and bass music before... 64th note editing software came along and then all of a sudden it became musically viable and you actually have mutants out there like there are 15 year old girls who grew up listening to britney spears that can actually now sing those auto-tune half steps like somehow their throats <laughs> like actually click from you know without without portamento for i mean it's 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 frightening but like the recording basically becomes the score 
uh, are we ever going to get to hear any of these weird um, <laughs> initial versions of, of that you used as the training, the training uh, audio? Well, most people didn't want, don't want to hear them. I think uh, Joe Joe Kubera specifically wanted just the MIDI output. Right? Yeah. So is is a yeah. I um I spend a lot of time <laughs> with with the and in fact you know most of the time because uh, I'm constantly that's how I I work on a tune is I'm rendering it to MIDI and and listening to it right um, and piecing it all together uh, and I think that yeah I think that when we started I showed that to people, to performers. And actually, I mean, that's why the group started is I was never, uh, I didn't actually plan or I wasn't making music for people um, mm-hmm. to play. I was just making electronic versions. Sure. I played it to, to Bo and Mustafa and Andrew and they're like, well, give it a, give it a shot. <laughs> play that, you know, you have it and just, re- just open it in finale and we'll play it like yeah. done. Um, which is how we, <laughs> done. we did. I mean, literally days later, done. This wow. Wow. note equals 60. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really unplayable. It was... Yeah, it was definitely unplayable. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, yeah, I have. I mean, that's the version that I know actually better than any of the any of the other versions. Um, and so I have like that in my head. Then I hear them play, and I'm just like, guys, can you please at least try to follow the chord changes? Like, what is what are you doing? Um, and so when we started working with for for this record, we got we involved a bunch of you know maybe it was something like eight to ten uh musicians mm-hmm. um freelancers who we had worked with once or twice or hadn't even worked with before uh and you know they're professionals they're used to being in that sort of situation and i got some you know weird questions about the music they're like you know what do you want me to do with this and i would right Say, then I'd say, give them the MIDI track. Say, well, just make it sound like this. Right. And then they had even weirder questions. And yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And so the, as Andrew was saying, Joe, but I think most people, most of the freelancers that we, we brought on board, I think they go for the music. I think this, you know, yeah. th- those were people who are, who are um, involved in a sort of like a literate music yeah. tradition, you know, a mm-hmm. reading tradition mm-hmm. and they read, um, which is, you know, one way to do it. But the, uh, the singers all had the microtonal MIDI tracks, and so and <laughs> so they all had these. They all had like these synthesized kind of sine waves, so that they could really hit. Oh like, wow! Yeah. yeah, that's the only way. That's there. the only yeah. way to explain the backup singers and you make me feel like a natural yeah. woman. Yeah, <laughs> really good. <laughs> yeah, it, and yeah and i mean i mean i mean there's no other way to do that like at least on a horn you can kind of bend it you have some idea where like a little bit right now you, you had like sine that. wave guiding tracks yeah, yeah. yeah. that yeah. that's good that's a relief <laughs> and and it's and that's another one of the weird things with the record too is is like you have you know some of us kind of phoning it in <laughs> and, then, and then the other is like really kind of wanting to hit every note right on. Yeah. Although I demanded like eight tr- eight takes of that tune. So well, sheet music is kind of a disease. Like you want yeah, it to right. be just informative enough yeah. to play. Yeah, like Absolutely. we're we're peering back from the 1950s abyss of like Boulez like having four note percussion parts with individual like dynamic range instructions for right. every single note on each hand and like yeah. just. Fuck you. Just, <laughs> just, just 
that's that's yeah no can't hear that were you a percussionist though? no no i just I, I did look through the score for hammer without a handle and just you know man what a the abyss <laughs> uh, yeah
<laughs> so then our pieces sort of like when you say the feedback piece, is it uh, sort of demarked by the particular configuration of iPads and software? Yeah, it's a different show every time. There's a slightly different, um, the instrument has different wiring every time. Oh, okay. Um, and certainly different things happen, although I definitely have known combinations. If I get too out on a limb and like sometimes more than, it, when playing live, it really is pretty much without a net. So there can be times where five minutes goes by of absolute disaster and like the combinations are just simply not clicking and they're not yeah. musical. And that's part of it. Like sometimes the combinations are inherently unmusical and you just basically have to, yep. Yep. It's live music. Like these are, uh, the line between mistake and discovery is pretty thin, but, uh, yeah, there are known combinations where yeah. if something isn't going on for more than five minutes, I'll like, okay. And I'll dial in something that, usually has fertile results and then just try to get back to the car crash from there. So disaster is, you know, I'm just wondering what, like what disaster is, uh, in this live electronic music practice. It's it, it's not, is it no music? Like it's not doing anything or is it's not doing, it's doing something that you don't want to do or these things usually make a lot of noise by themselves. Yeah. It's just a matter of, um, and my, my personal tastes are, I am pretty forgiving of pretty large amounts of dissonance. And the pitch trackers <laughs> basically throw you a lot of half, half steps. Like that's, um, they throw you a lot of dissonance as they try to figure out mm -hmm. what the other things are playing. Um, so my personal threshold for dissonance is fairly high myself, but depending on the room that I'm in, I can just tell how much... You, you don't, I wouldn't want, uh, I'm not a sadist, you know, depending on the room. Uh, and they can also be in, incredibly beautiful. And that's, that's the most, so those are some of the most amazing moments where you'd like mm -hmm. just pull back and all of a sudden they are playing a perfect fifth at just the right moment. And you're like, oh God, or like they, they hear the perfect fifth somehow. Like you didn't, they weren't, it yeah. was not intended. And yet suddenly somehow they give it to you. And, um, and the audience can tell, like sometimes you're, it is sort of a process that's been set in motion. My hand isn't on anything and everything just resolves. And so the audience can basically tell that it's the iPads <laughs> just, you know, <laughs> deciding, deciding to be pretty for a moment. And those moments are very powerful. God knows why they happen. <laughs> do you, do you try to like, I'm just wondering how you think about performing. Are you trying to get it? to do certain things or you're just trying to get it to do something like what are you kind of like thinking about or do you have sort of like intentions or goals when you when you get up there in that situation well um i'm trying to produce a combination that i haven't personally heard myself yet i'm trying to have that process be audible to the audience so that they can tell that they're at the birth of you know something um, I'd also pref like, I'm, I'm putting in process some machine, putting in motion, some machine processes. Uh, but I also, I'm not relinquishing, like I want it to be machine human. I want it mm -hmm. to be pretty clearly something that like a human set in motion and is still sort of very engaged with, um, nothing enrages me more than <laughs> certain Ableton live things where you just, you can tell it's. 
you know, the music could have very just as easily been played by humans, but like, you know, he just didn't want to like start a band. He uh, didn't want to bother to have anybody learn how to play those loops. And so it's just totally slave labor. Um, that is, those are, those are some dark moments where everybody in the room is just basically listening to that much automation. Um, but that's not what I'm trying to evoke when all of mm -hmm. these iPads are listening and locked in with each other. Like, you know, um, the machines do, are doing something to the music and, uh, it's historically different than what has happened before. So it's a chance to listen to the way that they listen. Sure. So, totally, totally. Um, these are some of the ideas that I, you know, I'm stumbling around in. I feel like I go back and forth a lot in how I think about agency with respect to, like, when you say, like, machine hearing. Um, I remember I, when I, I gave a record to David Dunn, and his response was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> makes me think of, like, like there's this big ear on a computer um, when the reality is, is nothing, nothing like that. It's the reality of like making this music is me staring at my terminal, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it's not me like having a meaningful uh, experience, you know, with, with like some other agent, like mechanical or, or, or not. It's like me executing code in the, in the terminal. Um, yeah. And so I was just wondering like how, um, if that's a kind of dichotomy that you, you think about or that like is applicable um, in respect to the kinds of machine listening stuff that, that you're, that you're doing. Well, one of the most impressive things about your band is that you're actually writing the code. Like you are not outsourcing that labor. You are spending, you are spending days and days of work sure, basically. Yeah. So when you hear the final result of your, your personal experience of that is the work you put in, like you put in, you put in that work. So like when David says it sounds like an ear, he's uh, probably closer to my experience of all of these magic devices where like I paid $6 for Sonic's G2M or like $5 for <laughs> yeah. Midimorphosis and just like have the pitch tracking code pretty much in a magic shell. Yeah. Like for me, it's probably closer to magic. <laughs> it's not... It's not magic. I <laughs> I, uh, I spend a lot of time. I've spent a lot of time like reading through crash dumps and like you know in the, in the, yeah. the course of my day job. Like you know I I'm not totally illiterate, but like certainly I did not clock the hours. So my experience is far less uh, involved or authorial. I guess I'm wondering if you think that um, or like have a sense that uh, all of these different you know between all of the different apps that you use and all the different like kinds of machine listening, machine hearing things that you use, if there's some emergent sense of there being a, a way of listening that is more like a machine than, than like a human. If, there's, if like there's a, if it's even possible to say like there is a way that machines hear or something like a way that machines hear that's categorically different um, from the way that humans hear and like what could be said or if it's just there is no difference, there's just humans and then there's, you know, code. Well, as we've all seen the quantum leaps in um, creative neural network modeling over the last five years, where we've gone from totally horrific uncanny valley simulations to some pretty creatively impressive. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's creatively impressive because humans wrote that code, but we've just gotten, there's more variety in the output. 
you know, mm -hmm. to some of these, these uh, improvising artistic code bases. So often, one of the other things I'll mention, like, you know how three years ago there were those experiments with walking robots and how there would be these U2 compilations of uh, walking robots falling over and we <laughs> yes. were all laughing yes. at them? Yeah. <laughs> And how four months ago, those military machines with wheels for feet, like we're basically like doing, doing jumps at 30 miles an hour and how we're about to give those things guns. Um, I, uh, I could easily imagine much more accurate code, uh, doing much more intelligent and accurate listening very mm -hmm. soon. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying not to laugh at these half steps yeah, and these yeah. totally primitive codes, like getting it wrong. Like we're basically documenting a certain stage of machine listening mm -hmm. um, while it's still slightly off axis and off balance. Uh, and it's awkward and funny, but it's also, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's, it's like we're proud parents, like watching the machines learn at a very critical stage, but like in five to 10 years, it's probably going to be a very different thing. So it seems like these are important pictures of a baby step. Yeah. Um, like uh, when Terminator 2 came out in 19, in the early 90s, I was like, oh God, this is the most, this is such a shallow film. This is so ridiculous. Of course, the problems with AI are going to have nothing to do with like kill bots, like stalking earth and like, you know, reducing it. And then less than 20 years later, we have these machines that are totally about to be weaponized and used to kill people. And, um, uh, yeah, T2 seems a lot less shallow these days than it used to, doesn't it? <laughs> so, uh, we, we need to be very careful about this stuff. Like it's, it's for fun, but we're also like, you know, we got to be, We've got to be careful parents. Well, I think that, I mean, let's see if I can make this connection. Going back like way early in the conversation when we, when we brought up the concept of, of cybernetics, it's like, yeah. what, what's that, you know, what's that doing right now? Um, and the thing that's always fascinated me about sort of that history or that lineage of electronic music, um, people that you mentioned like David Tudor and the Barons is it seems as though there's a balance there between sort of like engineering and some other kind of skill, some other sort of like artistic skill that, you know, it, actually performers are, you know, musicians and people who perform mm -hmm. um, have are very attuned to, which is how do you sort of like learn a system? How do you learn like a complex system um, such that you can, basically play it you know mm -hmm. like whether it's not exactly about making it and that's why i was like curious and you know what you think about it and if you have specific goals in mind or how just like how you think about performing on this on this kind of system uh, because to learn how to like influence or to control it or make it do things seems like such an interesting uh piece of that puzzle with respect to like the emergence in complex systems um or that plugs into like this idea of, of cybernetics which might I don't know, be one way to think about like what it's doing, rearing its head again in, in the context of sort of like digital. Uh, Cause that's the thing is like so, like, so many things are digital now. Um, and one major difference between when 
cybernetics sort of first came up and then even came up again is that we're so much further in the digital domain. Mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm, what does it mm-hmm. mean to, to rethink these ideas in the context of digital systems? Yeah, um, yeah. And it strikes me that what you're doing is actually like a super, super interesting way of, I mean, because I assume, I mean, yeah, those devices are... They're all digital. Digital, yeah. digital analysis, digital analysis devices. Um, yet the result has some thing of that like essence or that quality of, of like analog systems the analog mixer is just as much part of the instrument mm-hmm. as the uh the code yeah the weak link of the iphones is the, the 14 cent uh d to a eighth inch jack <laughs> those things are the biggest drawback like uh i mean you can buy individual higher mm-hmm. higher quality interfaces for uh-huh. each one but i don't drag those around with me uh when i play live usually like i'm also it's it's the cheap part yeah 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 um, but yeah, the 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 Mackie mixer or the Soundcraft mixer and the uh, the analog auxes are, um, it's not just it's not just digital. It's still a bit of a hybrid. But but wow, how are we going to turn all this around to make a point? <laughs> That's what I, editing's for. I guess the main it's uh, you know we we're using these machines to make music no matter what. Um, they're designed for certain purposes. Um, and some of those purposes end up being incredibly dangerous, like Ableton live, finally, somewhere around version seven or eight, finally started letting people have enough flexibility to make stuff that wasn't metronomically insipid. But, um, yeah, that software, like makes such a, the creation of a certain kind of music so easy that it forces you to make it. Sure. Like it is, it is, um, it's the sound of slavery. Like it really is like you, everyone is forced to make and listen to the same kind of music, like certain processes that used to be difficult are now automated. And the result is horrifying, like totally bad for us. <laughs> so, uh, but it, and it doesn't have to be that way. And the last five years has seen a total, like, People are finally fatigued enough of that mm-hmm. workflow that all of the new analog gear, the Eurorack modular renaissance, all of this other stuff is happening so that people are not forced to all make music in the same way. But the, the danger of that a lot Wiener was getting into is that when you create machines to make certain processes easier, uh, that are essentially like labor-saving devices, then you are enslaved. Mm-hmm. Like you are enslaved by the process of everyone's forced to work that way and the result is uh paucity um so um it's interesting to try to get to the intrinsic chaos or listening or like look at what these machines are good at doing other than um labor saving it's it can be a lot more instructive to try to pay attention to how they are uh, how they listen uh, or how they are interacting with the music rather than to just basically use them to do things quicker. So, yeah, I mean, I don't want to uh, have the same set happen twice ever. I want it to be live music. Mm-hmm. So, like, these machines. And I think the audience can tell that they're listening. That's, that's, yeah. that is in enough of itself is the statement. Great. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, that that, thank you, that thank sounded you. like that was the that was yeah. the ending. <laughs>